Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. I'm talking about another photograph of mine today. This image comes from the Sierra Nevadas down near Lone Pine, California, uh, in eastern California. That section of the eastern Cascades is really interesting. It's really quite remote out there. There's very few towns, but this was an area called the Alabama Hills. And they're really a, a, an interesting kind of geological formation out there where the, it's, it's a certain type of sandstone, I suppose. I don't know, really. But it's a certain type of erosion out there that, that looks really interesting uh, set against the juxtaposition of these really uh, sharp kind of pointed sets of, or, well, I don't know, pointed set of the mountain range that is the Sierra Nevada is just a little bit past that. You've seen it a ton of times. It's probably your Macintosh background right now, but it's a really cool zone. And uh, this photograph looks back to the uh, south during a really cool copper sunset where we had a lot of bright uh, color in the cloud formations above as the sunset below the, the eastern, or excuse me, on the western horizon below uh, below the Sierra Nevadas, but a really cool spot, and I really like this kind of alien look to it, which is something I try and push for in a lot of my landscape photographs, and some I want to try and get back to this year. I think it's really cool, but I think this is from, what, 2012? This is years ago. You can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. Finished up that uh, that camping trip I was doing up the, the mountain creek there in the Cascades uh, a couple days ago. What was that, like Wednesday? I think it was like uh maybe like tuesday tuesday night to wednesday morning i think that was the super moon that was coming up that night if i remember right and, uh, and that was pretty cool it was cool to see the full moon up there and they always talk about the super moon which is kind of a i don't know it's a little bit of a misnomer but it it's cool to see too i think they talk about it happening every six months or so really it's just kind of the oscillation of a bit of the eccentricities in the orbit of the moon that make it, I think, about 25,000 miles closer at its maximum and then maybe about 25,000 miles further away at its distant maximum. But uh, I think it's really only like a little bit of a sliver larger than it normally would be. If you notice, though, it's a thing I learned way back. and I think that they, they show it in a scene in Apollo 13, but if you put your hand all the way out and you put your thumb up, at all times, you're able to cover the entire full moon just with your thumbnail. It's pretty wild. But you got, kind of always like visualize the moon as being this really big thing in the sky. And really, a lot of the time, it's, uh, it's just as big as your thumbnail at, at arm's reach, which is kind of a trip. But it was, kind of a, it was cool to see the super moon that night. It was really bright. It was cool uh, to kind of watch around and uh, kind of look at how it was illuminating the forest and the trees and the mountains and stuff around me. That was kind of nice to see. Cold that night, though. Man, I tell you. So I have a 15-degree sleeping bag, and that's great. 15 degrees is fine. Um, but And 15 degrees really is, is uh, more than adequate for most circumstances that I end up being in during the summertime. Um, where it's, I don't know, it's just not too big of a concern about how cold it gets. But when it says 15 degrees, 
it really means you're going to be comfortable down to somewhere around 35 degrees. But anywhere under 30 degrees is a pretty un uncomfortable experience. I think it means you're going to stay alive until it's about 15 degrees. So if it were me, again, buying something for maybe, I don't know, a more heavy three-season uh, camping experience, most of the time, probably a lot of the nights out that I do, even though I like to go at all times of year, it seems like the majority of nights I go out are during the summer months or, you know, during like pretty fair weather uh, seasons. Um, but if I were going to buy again, which I'm, I'm going to try and get like a two or three sleeping bag system going, um, if I was going to buy again, I'd probably get a zero degree or maybe a negative 15 degree. You know, I could really use the warmth because, man, what I noticed is even if it was just a little bit down to what would have been probably maybe, I don't know, 29 or something like that. It was, you know, it was a bit below freezing. Who knows how, how cold it really was. It was only like an elevation of 2,500 feet. And it was a canyon. I thought it was a clear night, but I thought it would be relatively sheltered. And yeah, it was a lot of, it was a lot of ice on my window when I woke up and it was a cold, cold night to uh, sit through too. So, um, so yeah, that 15 degree bag was, uh, was just holding up out there. Uh, but yeah, if I was going to go again, I think they have like a zero degree bag. And then down below that, they have like a negative 15 and like maybe like a negative 30 degree bag. Negative 30 sounds like a, a real warm, uh, like down bag. So I think mine's a synthetic bag. They talk about this sometimes where there's like differences in the, the thermal insulation qualities of the material that your sleeping bag is made out of. And I think that um, the for... It was it was an improvement actually, you know, above what I don't know, whatever cotton we were using for a while. They were using uh, wool stuff, which was pretty smart. That that works really well to to be an insulating material, and it doesn't, uh, or it works well with moisture and stuff and all the other things we know about. Merino wool is really cool. Everybody knows about that kind of stuff. But um, but we we had like you know those really terrible big cotton sleeping bags way back. Those were rough. They'd, I don't know if they were really even that insulating. Then they switched over to those synthetic materials, um, which is probably all oil-based. Does that sound right? Like a petroleum-based uh, like plastics product that was made out of synthetics. I think that's how they spin up a lot of those. Uh, those well, I don't know. They're just those synthetic types of materials that they're making these nylons out of. Um, so I think that was how a lot of this uh, this synthetic stuff had been made. Um, but really, I think what they, they talk about being the superior insulator is uh, down. And that's what I'd hope to try and find as a, another zero degree or, or negative 15 degree sleeping bag would be um, a negative 15 degree down bag, um, which is normally a bit more expensive. You know, when you're looking around at the price points for these different sleeping bags, if you're uh, trying to get into some colder weather camping stuff, what you're going to find is that those name brand or, you know, or not even name brand necessarily, but just a, a, uh, a bespoke manufacturer for a uh, quality technical outdoors product is going to be very expensive. Uh, and so that's where you're going to find, I don't know, well, you know, three, three ninety nine for a sleeping bag, two ninety nine. Four ninety nine, six ninety nine. I've seen like a lot of pretty expensive prices out there. I think Nemo makes some bags that are looking pretty cool that I've seen uh, recommended a few times. I've heard of Big Agnes. They make tents most of the time, though, right? They're a tent company, aren't they? Yeah. Stone Glacier is one that I keep uh, hearing kind of pop up here and there now. Uh, for some tents, Marmot I think has some bags. 
Um, RAI is, uh, is you know, uh, a, a retailer of recreational equipment. Uh, they're closed right now, though, so I don't even know if you could get an order from anyone like that. But uh, but they have some bags. I think that's where my synthetic bag was from uh, that I've been using for the last, I don't know, seven years or so. Uh, so that's it's been fine. But I also uh, tested out the sleeping mat I got. I got a new uh, Thermarest sleeping mat. I know, big news. It's pretty exciting. Guys, stay tuned. Uh, it's... Uh, um, yeah, it's a, it's a larger sleeping mat than I had before, but it's a, it's a coated one with the, I think it's kind of like, I don't know if it's ballistic nylon, but it's that nylon coating over it. So it's not just the, the rubber mat at the base of it. Uh, so you can throw it on the ground or on the, I don't know, semi abrasive materials that it would be outside and it's working great. I think it's about one inch thick or so. It's about 25 inches wide at the shoulder point. And it's long enough to uh, fit my whole body, which is uh, probably a new one for me. So, yeah, I got a solid camp mat. I think for the last, like, three years I've been sleeping on one that goes flat about four hours after you start sleeping. So uh, that's kind of nice to swap out. I don't know why I put up with it for so long, really. Shouldn't do that. Uh, Sleep is, like, one of the best things you can get. You know, if you can figure out just, like, a couple easy things to take care of when you're out camping or out in the woods and stuff it's it's probably sleep i mean that's like the thing that takes you know and it's frustrating too because when like even this last one i'm talking about didn't sleep very well way too cold uh part of it you know enough shelter and uh, enough stuff that was uh kind of comfortable but really as it is yeah it's like oh i need to i need to figure out a couple other extra things to kind of throw in there but yeah there's just a couple things you can figure out when you're going camping like how to stay warm or how to be comfortable when uh you do go or like when you are sleeping is like one of the most important and most, I don't know, effective things you can do to kind of improve the way that a trip goes. Cause like, uh, yeah, I can be like, I don't know, it can be brutal the next day if you don't get any sleep the night before, which is how probably the first half dozen camping trips of the year, like, you know, those first half dozen or so overnights of the year, I'm just always kind of groggy and like, Oh, blah, blah, why do I have to get up right now? Which is sort of how it was Wednesday morning when I woke up, I, uh, I popped up and uh, I think it was probably about 5 a.m. or so that I that I got up. I think it was just about first light. Um, the sun hadn't come up yet, but uh, but there's a little bit of, of light up in the sky, and the stars were um, were kind of washed out by the blue sky. Uh, so I hopped up, and uh, the fire was out. I think from the night before, like I was mentioning, how those uh, the sticks had worn out and the coals had started burning down. Even I think by the time I was near the end of my last podcast. Uh, so I, I uh, hopped out and the, the back windows were clear. There wasn't any frost on it, but the front window, the windshield was ice over pretty hard, really. It, I mean, it looked like it was, you know, like coated in water and then froze over solid. So it wasn't even just kind of like a, a fluffy bit of white frost or something that had built up on it through fog. It just looked like a, a hard coating of, of just an ice sheet over the windshield. So I thought, oh, great. I don't have an ice scraper or something with me. I was thinking, ah, it's May, you know. Who needs an ice scraper? I'm taking a sip of coffee. So, yeah, I don't know. I grabbed uh, a box. I think it was a piece of cardboard out of the back that I could kind of flex around a bit. Threw that over the windshield. Tried to run the truck for a bit. Tried to warm it up. It took a while, too. But, uh, yeah, scraped off some ice. Scraped off a hole big enough to kind of get started on the drive. And then um, 
uh, prepped to take off. But yeah, I took some photos and stuff around the campsite for a bit first in the morning. Nice draw in the valley, like I was talking about, that goes up to that uh, that ridge point that you can kind of see off in the distance. And uh, I think I could see like the the fire from the smoke or the smoke from the fire of the neighboring campers over there. I don't know if I'd mentioned it. Well, yeah, I, I definitely did in the last one how they were they're kind of doing brodies out in the out in the road around sunset. I think I got a little clip of it on video, but yeah, it's like four or five of them in these uh, kind of beater late 90s 4 by 4 trucks doing spins out in the dirt roads. So looks fun i don't know but they were uh, i think getting getting the fire going and stuff in the morning too or whatever they had going from the night before but you can see a plume of it coming up uh from the the area they would have been camping in over by the uh the creek bed downhill and yeah it was cool uh took some photos and stuff that morning walked around kind of cleaned up the camp a little bit uh put the fire stuff out and jumped in the truck uh had that little hole in the ice to see through and then yeah, popped on a podcast and cruised down the road. And so what I was trying to do was uh, was take off down to a couple other spots along the creek uh, while it was still morning and then head down ultimately to um, the area where the lake started to build up. And so kind of how it works is like it kind of flows down the creek and then there's a dam at a point ultimately. And then back right behind the dam is a reservoir where that creek is kind of built up. And I guess now is yeah a body of water out there. So I uh, drove down a ways and took some photographs of the creek and the morning light and some of the water and stuff coming through. I really like that kind of effect of the, the sort of early spring kind of fresh snow melt mountain creek stuff that uh, uh, just sort of looks really crisp and uh, forested and natural. And then I came down a ways further to a bridge that kind of cuts across a span of the creek as it starts to sort of widen out into the reservoir area. And it looks like, uh, you know, a big stretch of calm water out on the edge of the, the bridge where I think two different groups that were doing some fishing in the morning. And yeah, it seems like people are still out. It was a busy area up there. It was uh, still, still definitely a pretty fully populated set of people, you know, even during this lockdown period, there's a bunch of people out there hanging out and fishing. I think it was two different different groups at two maybe they were uh they were all kind of connected but yeah they were they were out there with a couple lines over the bridge and they were I, picking up a couple things i think so I, I saw a lady that was pulling up in a little a little blue kayak to the ramp on the first day and on her what is that thing you know when you you run it through the the gilling you got the fish and stuff anyway she pulled up uh with like I don't know, it was like four or five trout or something on her um, on her, in her kayak. I don't know. That's where I'll leave it, I guess. But uh, she pulled up with four or five trout. So I figured these guys, these guys were uh, doing a, a little bit of trout fishing out there, uh, which sounds fun. It's a nice, clear, crisp morning and stuff, like I was saying. So, uh, yeah, it sounds like it would be nice to be out there for a couple hours doing some fishing. Um, and, yeah, it looked like they were they were up to it. They were getting a, a couple things. It was cool, too. I saw an osprey that, uh, that took off, I think, over the – the lake area just at that time and uh, would kind of like pull up at certain spots over the water kind of back flap to hold in the same spot and look underwater and see if there was something and then i don't know didn't see enough or didn't see a a prime opportunity and then it would kind of swoop off and then take off to a different section of the lake and do it again so i watched that about three or four times tried to take a couple pictures of the area which are nice too. I like the the photographs that I got that morning. It's got a got a nice a nice look to it. Really, you know, a lot of the time the the the, 
the photographs really look uh, a lot better when you just select the right time of day to be somewhere, uh, which, you know, is obvious. But just the types of colors and the, the types of saturation and dynamics that you get and the, the look of a pretty simple, you know, set of trees and water, it just comes off a lot better when it's, uh, it's just the right type of light. It's really amazing, too, to kind of see what differences it makes when it's a clouded day or a sunny day or a morning or an evening or midday. Really, it seems like the dynamics of the light change so much that you can get like a totally different look in the photo, um, which is always kind of interesting to pay attention to and uh, sort of see how that how that goes, what changes about it and, um, and sort of how that affects the photographs that you're making. I mean, you can have, you know, something cool at any time of day, but it's kind of cool to figure out. Uh, how it works for you or how it works or what I'm trying to do is how, how to figure out how, how it works for my photographs and what I'm trying to do. Um, which is nice. I don't know. It was cool going out there and, uh, and climbing around the creeks and stuff in the morning and taking a cup of photos and watering Osprey and going over to the lake area. I was trying to work on similar stuff to what I've done before, but kind of that mirrored look of the really calm water as it spreads across the lake in the morning. And then the reflection of the, the bright blue, kind of pre sunlit sky or how is it you know like before the sun is actually up over the horizon there's not a lot of intensity so it's just kind of a softer blue glow in a lot of ways and then there's still enough illumination that you can see the greens and the trees and sort of the soft calm water in the morning before it gets kind of agitated through the rest of the day so nice uh, kind of peaceful looks to the the photos and sort of the, the natural stuff that i like to go kind of capture you know really ultimately though uh, there's some nice stuff out there and I was really like, uh, happy to kind of photograph some of the, some of what I was looking for, but I was also, I was also frustrated in the area too. I think there was a, um, there was, it was a little more choked off than what I normally like. Like, uh, there wasn't as many opportunities as I had hoped for. I did try and, you know, utilize the ones that I found, but there wasn't as many opportunities as I had hoped for, for kind of an opened up, uh, wide scene that you could, uh, set up, uh, a landscape photo. And there wasn't a lot of elements to really work with. It was just sort of, um, oh, you know, that's like some rolling hills off to a green hill. So, <laughs> so sometimes I'm trying to find some stuff that's a little bit more, uh, dynamic in its look than that. Uh, but it was fun though, even as it is anyway, uh, though I'm trying to, I think maybe, uh, like I was mentioning on the last one, I got stuck and turned around by the snow and I didn't want to have to deal with, uh, any of that right now. Uh, but in the next weeks and stuff, I want to get up to Mount Jefferson or, uh, Mount Washington or a couple of these other wilderness areas that, uh, that have a few, uh, kind of visual, um, landmarks that would be, uh, worth taking an observation of. You can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com. You can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it if you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Billy Newman photo. I've got the Sony a7R going through its paces. It's been really cool using it for the last uh, 
the last couple of weeks, I've been trying to figure out its idiosyncrasies, and there are a lot of them. There's a lot of them with these newer cameras, and I can see definitely where from the A7R, or, you know, yeah, from the first series of the A7s to the A7 II, and, you know, so on and so forth with the better and, and different accentuated camera models, uh, they get better. They really do get better. There are some things with uh, the first renditions of the electronic viewfinder and the system of how that takes photos, how it kind of interrupts when you're taking photos that don't quite seem to the level of professionalism that I'm really trying to hit for. So I know that there's a lot of custom settings that I have to go into and sort of tweak how that A7R is going to be grabbing at photos and then how it's chimping. You guys heard of that before? Chimping. It's uh, I don't know what it really has to do with, but uh, but it's referring to when you take a photograph or you take a couple of photographs and then you look down at that screen on the bottom of, of your digital, or, you know, the back plate of your digital camera. You look down and you see the photo and then you come up, you recompose and you shoot again and then come down and look at it. And it's, I guess, I don't understand it completely. It just seems sort of like uh, like a modern approach to something that the technology allows you to do. So I think it's totally acceptable, but for whatever reason... It it is sort of an interference in the creative or in the photography process sometimes, and I know that there are many pros. All of those pros coming from a past world that's no longer here, a film where it wasn't really acceptable to do to do half shutter press autofocus, <laughs> like you have to do autofocus from the back, and then and then shutter is its own system. And then with that, there's all these kind of silly rules about how you can use focus, how you can use composition stuff, how you can set up your frame, when you can look at the screen or when you can review the images. I guess these film shooters, they thought it was uncouth to be able to review or see the photograph before the film was developed or before it was later on. Interesting. And I see kind of psychologically there's this... There is this path that does seem to create better work or more intuitive photographs. And those are better. They are more needed. And I can see where some of these tricks might get you closer to that. But the idea of just looking at the back of the screen, that doesn't impede you so much. And it doesn't, this doesn't really stop you. If you're a pro and you know what you're doing, you look at the screen, you're looking at the screen because you know why you're looking at the screen. It doesn't really seem to make sense that there's these sort of sideways rules about features you can and can't use that are put into your camera. But to speak about efficiency, the problem that I noticed about the A7R is that it will display the image to you for about a second and a half, two seconds. And it will display it on the screen, but it will also display it in, in the electronic viewfinder for your eye. And you can shut this feature off, but there's still a little bit of a hiccup around the time that you hit the shutter button. And the problem with this is if I'm framed up to take a photograph, let's say of a a situation, I remember back at OSU when I was shooting sports a lot, uh, let's say there's a football game, I'm out in front of the action, and I see that the Beavs set up a play, they throw a pass, the guy gets it, he's right in the pocket on the third of the frame that I have, and I have focus tracking on him, I want to take a series of shots with a high frame rate so I can get that whole run of action as he moves towards me. And so the issue that I'm having is, in photography, you're trying to select moments that look good. That's kind of the point. Aesthetically, you want them to be choices that are appealing. And that has to do a lot with gesture, a lot with movement, a lot with 
kind of positioning and framing and composition and, and sort of thoughtfully considering what does the person look like? How, how are all of these things in the frame relating to each other? And is it going to work when you press the shutter? And the difficulty is with these A7Rs or even with the Sony A6000 when I'm looking at it and I take this series of photographs, I'm almost blind that whole time. Whereas before in the past when I would have been working with an SLR, the there's the shutter flap where you see black for just a moment, but it comes back and it's optically correct immediately. It's optically correct to what you're going to be shooting, but with the EVF, there's just enough lag that in high action, you seem to kind of miss where the gesture is. If stuff's moving around, it seems like you almost have to kind of guess or assume that the next moment's going to happen and then try and take it, but you can't see it. It's weird. It's like it shuts off the viewfinder right at the time that you need to be looking through it. And so in some ways like that, it's a little bit complicated of, am I framed up right? Am I looking at the thing right? When I take the picture, it just shows me something else all of a sudden. And I know that they've solved a lot of these problems. Like if you look up the Sony A9 and some of the features that it has, if you, if you bring that into high-speed shooting, it's got this interesting system where instead of having the electronic viewfinder blink black or cut out, cut out completely, have the processor move all of its attention to processing that image that it just captured and then bring back the electronic viewfinder momentarily later. What we see in the A9 is a system where there's, there's the bracket, there's like a, let's say like a red focus bracket that kind of goes around and, and you're shooting, you're shooting, you're shooting. Uh, but what you're seeing is instead of, instead of the, the electronic viewfinder blinking out black and then showing you a frame, or just blinking out black and then coming back on, what we see is just that bracket, that red bracket, blink yellow, or blink from black to yellow, or black to red, or something like that. And all that's indicating is that it is firing frames, but you're just still seeing it completely, normally, like you would view any action on a screen. And that's a really interesting process. I think it's like, I don't know, it's like 20 frames a second or something like that. It's almost video at that point when you're shooting... Raw frames? Are you kidding me? Raw frames on a Sony A9 at God knows what almost 50 megapixels that it's shooting at. And you can do 20 frames a second just looking at the thing and then seeing a little black bar blink yellow. And that's signaling that you're, you're capturing all that data. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on BillyNewmanPhoto.com few new things up there some stuff on the homepage, some good links to other other outbound sources some some links to books some links to some podcasts links to some blog posts all pretty cool but yeah check it out at billy thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast talk to you next time